Welcome to the Candor Communication Podcast, where we discuss interpersonal communication and all the human stuff that gets in the way. Join us as we learn to get our message across with more courage, clarity, and connection. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Devon. I can't believe we've had almost 50 episodes and we haven't talked about languages yet. I mean, you'd think that language is quite important when it comes to communication, right? So, we're finally having that conversation. And who better to have it with than someone who can speak eight languages? Today, we're talking to Florian de Clout. Florian has lived in eight different countries and can speak eight languages. He has a wealth of knowledge to share about adapting to new cultures and learning new languages. He has worked as a diplomat, salesperson, teacher, solopreneur, and growth marketer. One common theme has been Florian's ability to adapt and learn. We definitely learned a lot from talking to Florian, and we trust that you will too. We hope you enjoy this informative conversation with Florian de Clout. Hey, Florian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you. And it's great to, to see you in real life at Ivan and Marcus. I've seen, I've seen you on LinkedIn and it's, it's great to finally get to see you and get to hear you. Uh, so yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. And like you said, it's way overdue. I think it's been about a year since we actually connected on LinkedIn. And it was interesting because when we first connected, you really stood out to me because on one hand, I was like, I think we were both in that, what's it like the three, three, six, five challenge of posting every day on LinkedIn and you were just going crazy. I think you were posting like four times a day and I was like, dude, this guy's going to burn out. <laughs> this guy's so excited. I did burn out, but that was in December. <laughs> I, I did burn out in the end, yeah. It was in community, but the, the great thing is, yeah, like I try to, like whenever I try to do something and I get excited about it, I just try to do it like like to the max and yeah. try to figure out the game. And I think like LinkedIn at the end of the day is kind of like a game, right? So you just have to figure out, just have to figure out the rules. And the best way to figure out the rules is just you post lots of content, like shoot everywhere and see what sticks and then like head more towards towards what, what works and uh, kind of dump what doesn't work. And that's, and yeah. Yeah. And I remember when, when we both started, we started about, about the same time, right? Yeah. Well, I think we started in that community around a similar time. I right. think it was maybe a few months before you, you know, not with much success. So it's mm. been, I've had a much slower learning curve than, than you have. But one right. of the things that, that really stood out when we first connected was, I think we disagreed on a post. <laughs> I think oh, you, yeah. you posted something and, and like we disagreed about it. And I think it was really refreshing because usually like, on social media, you can have disagreements and it just becomes like shouting matches until we can see, okay, who's right. And I'm just going to keep be more entrenched with my own idea. But I think we both kind of left that interaction feeling more positive and, and more appreciative of a different perspective as opposed to trying to cling on to our own views. And right. I think that's kind of stuck in my mind. I'm not sure how you perceive that. <laughs> no, I remember you were, you were the first person who ever disagreed with me on a LinkedIn post. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's true. It's true because I, I, the thing about LinkedIn, I love LinkedIn and I love the platform and I love the community here. But I feel sometimes like people just tend to agree with everything you say. And, you know, yeah. especially when you become a bit more popular in something, like you can just say the, the, the stupidest thing and people will just agree with you. <laughs> and if when you take a step back, you kind of like, wait, that will that's a stupid thing to say. Why would I say that? <laughs> Why would people follow my advice? But but then people do agree because I guess, like, I don't know, it's uh, just a positive platform or something and people don't really want to be that person who, like, it's very different vibe from a place like Twitter, for example, where, you know, people just like fight each other all the time, right? 
LinkedIn, if you are the one who's like in disagreement, you kind of get like bad vibes from people. Like that's just not what the overall atmosphere of the platform is. So, so I guess, yeah, people tend to agree a lot. And I think that's terrible because the moment everybody agrees with you, that's where you're in trouble because you're not <laughs> being challenged anymore. Right. So, so yeah, yeah I, I remember that post. I think that post was about, I think it was about a uh, training or something, right? Yeah. I, I think I remember I posted something about, about a story about, uh, yeah, I was training a student and he wasn't listening to me. And so I let him fail on purpose. And then I said, like, yeah, now that I got your attention, like, do do it my way because it works. And then it worked. And yeah, I think it was like the. I think we kind of disagreed on the on the method. I think you, you thought I was too harsh on him to say, like, now that I got your attention, like, do it my way. I, that I made him fail on purpose. I think that was the. I think that was the gist of a conversation. Yeah, it was something something like that. Yeah, and I think what struck me about it was, I think the openness to different perspectives, which. You know, later I kind of learned more that you had traveled and lived in different countries, which kind of made me realize, okay, you kind of, that experience of experiencing different cultures, I think lends itself well to opening yourself up to more perspectives and not trying to be right, but more kind of having a learner's mindset about figuring out and, and kind of being curious about people's perspectives. So I'd be curious, I think I saw some posts, but how many countries have you lived in so far? Oh, okay. So I've lived in eight different countries. So, so, so from some background, so I was born in the U.S. I grew up in France. My family's French. So I'm French American. So that's two countries. Then I, when I was a kid, I did spend some time in the U.K. because like the French education system, when it comes to learning English is not great. Okay. So my parents had the idea of sending me to boarding school in the U.K. for a while, which was, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. <laughs> it was an interesting experience as a French guy, not speaking, like not speaking good English in the U.K., so then I went to college, did my study abroad for one year in Australia, and then I had to do an internship abroad. So I chose to go to the Dominican Republic. I found an opportunity there because I wanted to practice Spanish. And then for my master's, I moved to the US and I did a study abroad in Singapore for one semester. After I graduated from my master's, I so I wanted to become a diplomat. So I found a job at the French embassy in a country in Africa called Botswana. So in, for those of you guys who don't know where Botswana is, you take South Africa, you go north, that's Botswana, essentially. Yeah, yeah and then after Botswana, I moved to Thailand because my, my then girlfriend, now wife, is from Thailand. And so I've been here for six years now. Wow. that So I've only migrated once from South Africa to Australia. Mm-hmm. So I think this is close to two countries you've lived in. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll claim that similar, similarity right. there. Yeah, but Botswana and South Africa is it's pretty much the same. It's the same space, you know. I mean, it's different countries, but you kind of feel you're in the same area. It's the same. It's the same countries, pretty much. It's the same country, but not the same country. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> well, I haven't even been there, so which is a shame, <laughs> considering <laughs> they were just right next door. But I was, I'm curious, like, what culture did you find the most difficult to adjust to? Oh, actually, I would say it would be adjusting to the UK because when I was when I went there. I didn't really speak the language. So I was, I was nine years old. I had like, like school English, went there and the French and the British, we're not like historically, we're not friends. Right. So, right. <laughs> so I wasn't, <laughs> so, and, and kids, kids are, are not really, kids can be really mean to each other. So I, I wasn't really yeah. in a friendly environment. So I think that was the biggest adjustment because I was, I was young. I didn't speak the language, French people around me because that was the whole purpose, but I had to speak English and the other kids, like also, like I went in the middle of a school year. So like all the friend groups were already settled and I was kind of like on my own, like trying to find my, my own group. So I think that was the hardest one to to adjust. 
but that's kind of different because I, I was there as a kid. As an adult, though, I would say Dominican Republic for a similar reason because I didn't speak the language when I well I spoke some of the language at first, but not I couldn't speak like fluent Spanish. But I thought it's the it's the mentality of the people. Like I found I found that compared to like other countries I've been in, like Dominican vibe is very proud and kind of like they have a superiority complex. And I think it's because the Dominican Republic is on an island called Hispaniola. And they share that island with Haiti, which is the poorest country in the Americas, if not the world. So it's not exactly a desirable place. So I guess by contrast, they feel very proud of themselves and very, very great about themselves. But the country by itself, like they still have a lot to improve on, but they don't really have that willingness to get better because they're like, oh yeah, well, we're still better than Haiti, which is anyone's better than Haiti. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's pretty much, yeah, but that's, I think that, that was the, biggest adjustment that was the most difficult adjustment so to, to sum up i think if i if i if i had to like sum up the whole experience i think the hardest part was because i didn't speak the language so i had a hard time integrating myself to the culture because i couldn't interact with it mm. I'm, I'm feeling jealous of your geography skills and knowledge of the world i'm feeling jealous and embarrassed i think because i've only lived in australia and um, i haven't lived in another country i've holidayed to plenty of countries but, uh, but- uh, australia is a big place though Thanks. <laughs> it's like uh, five or six different countries in itself, right? Yes, in, in, in a sense. Size. But I, I want to come back to um, making the connection between culture and something you said about LinkedIn where everyone's quite agreeable on LinkedIn by nature. And I, and I want to compare that to all these different countries that you've experienced. So I grew up either by someone telling me or with some sort of mindset that French people are known to be rude or direct or they won't be friendly with you unless they become more comfortable or acquainted with you and that being different to say i'm the kind of person who would just say good day to anyone in the, in the street in all those countries that you've lived in I, I guess you've got plenty of knowledge and experience in the types of types of natural behavior that people have did you find that some people in some countries were just naturally very agreeable and some would be you know give you the perception of not being as friendly on first impressions right well it's actually to to bounce back on your new french comment it's actually usually parisians like if you go out of paris people are very friendly and very very nice and stuff but parisians i mean even to french people like like <laughs> like my friends in thailand they're like oh yeah parisians they're oh they're so mean to asians and stuff but no no no, no we're not mean to asians we mean to everyone <laughs> like even to french people or to each other we hate everyone everyone is not from paris they just they're just subhumans you know no, but it's, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, there's some, I think it's due to the culture. Like, so if, if I take, for example, like Asian cultures, Asian cultures, people tend to be more agreeable just because there's this thing, like people are much more indirect. So even if they're in conflict with you, they're not going to be in your face. They're going to be more, more indirect. So, so for example, in a place like Thailand, when you don't know the culture, like you feel that everybody agrees with you and you can just do whatever you want and people will, will let you do everything they want because they have a like, different way of expressing disagreement. Like they're not going to go in your, in your face and like, but then in terms of friendliness, hmm, like I would say like the friendliest people is probably the Americans. Like Americans are just very friendly. I think they, they just have this, this ability. I don't know if it comes from the school system or it's because they just have a very like community based kind of society. Like just people would just have small talk with you, like, you know, in the elevator or on, on the subway or, you know, anywhere. While French people, well, at least like Parisian people, they're not going to talk to you unless they have to. But then like, it's kind of like there's a shell, but then once you crack the shell, they, they can be very, very good friends. So 
So it's kind of like, I don't know if I'd answer, I don't know if I'd answer the question, but yeah, I mean, some cultures are definitely more like agreeable and more like friendly than others. But then usually the other cultures that are not friendly, you just have to like burst through the shell and then you kind of like get, get to see the, the realness of, of, of a culture. And like you, yeah, and actually, usually I find like the harder the shell, the more, the better the f- people are at the core. Because yeah, I mean, you kind of have to earn their trust and you have to earn their friendship. No, you, you have answered the question and you're given more. And much of what you said has matched my experience. And I think it becomes interesting in, in a podcast like this, where we call ourselves, we're, we're very candid in, in how we want to be in terms of our communication. But it, it brings up some interesting scenarios where some cultures will be indirect. They don't want to offend. They may not say what they are th- really thinking. They might give you a nod of a head and a smile, but really they are completely disagreeing with what you're saying. So communication in such a situation becomes interesting because you may you may leave thinking, yes, that person agreed with me. It seemed like everything went okay. There was no problems. But the other person is thinking something completely different. They're thinking, oh, that guy's that guy's a fool or that guy's I, I don't want to have that conflict. Right. It's actually interesting because, yeah, a lot of people make that mistake, especially when when they go to like Asia, it's very, it's, it's very obvious. Like you go to, especially in a place like Japan, like Thailand is another place like this where, or Philippines, like you have a feeling that everybody agrees with you and everybody's so nice and stuff like that. But because you don't read the cues, you don't understand that. <laughs> you don't understand that you're making a fool of yourself and like, no, no one <laughs> is agreeing with you and no one is ever going to do business with you. <laughs> everybody hates you. It's just, yeah, you have to, you have to go in knowing what you're getting into and in, and uh, yeah, sometimes you just make the experience by yourself. You're learning it the hard way, or sometimes you just need to be sure to to, to find a mentor or someone who's who's been there before, and then they'll tell you, yeah, when a Thai person says this, they actually mean this or, or something like this. So that's why you're like, oh, okay, they just say this. So they say they. So, so for example, a, a classic example is when a Japanese person says it's going to be difficult. Go, that means no. Like they're not going to say no. <laughs> yeah. They're going to say it's going to be difficult. So that way. It kind of like covers them, like they're not disagreeing with you, so they're not being like direct. But then, if they, you're like, "Why didn't you do it?" They say, "Oh, it was just very difficult." So yeah, it didn't happen. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, and I would imagine it'd be difficult to navigate that. So I mean, how, how do you then go about if if you then move to a new country as you as you have a few times? How, how do you like you say get that mentor or get that person who can give you that? insight into how things are done here like or, or how do you adapt yourself to that culture so you don't miss on those cues that are obvious to them but you're just not registering my particular case like i was lucky because i would i would be going there for work or for studying so okay. so usually like i had colleagues who had more experience than than me so for example if i take the example of botswana then i was at an embassy i was working with four experienced diplomats like one of them had been in botswana for six years yeah, and then like some of the staff as well in the embassy was from Botswana. So every time, every time I had a question about like, why, what do people mean when they say this? Or like, why, why did that guy do that? They'd be able to explain like, oh yeah, because you know, in Botswana culture, in Botswana culture, this is what we do and this is how it happens and stuff like this. So because I worked there and I had colleagues, then I was able to have that. I was able to understand what was, what was happening. If you don't have a colleague, like one thing I do recommend, and I, I think it's kind of a segue of what, of the main main topic of, of this episode is, yeah, join a language class. So for example, if you're moving to Japan because you want to build your life in Japan, sign up for a Japanese language class. 
you'll be with a Japanese teacher who speaks some English who will be able to understand, like they'll understand all the questions you have because that's not the first time there's a foreigner who shows up with lots of questions about Japan. So they, they'll, they'll see where you come from. They'll be able to answer your questions. And then on top of that, you'll be able to meet some other, like some fellow learners, like, you know, who just moved into Japan and they'll, you'll be able to share your experience. And that's kind of creates a whole like cultural learning environment. That really makes your life easier. That's, I think it's a really good tip, actually. <laughs> One question I had was when you first moved to the UK for that, for boarding school, how did you feel about that at the time? Like, were you at the time versus now, maybe? Like, at the time, did you feel differently to how you feel about now, your parents' decision to send you to boarding school in, in a different country? Well, at that time, I. I didn't really get it. You know, I mean, I was in France, like chilling in elementary school, like, you know, I had my friends and stuff. And then all of a sudden you take me out of my comfortable environment and put me in a boarding school in a place where I don't speak the language. Yeah. To give you an idea how, how I felt about English back then. So I re so I had to go to the U.S. embassy to renew my passport once. So the, the diplomat was talking, was started talking to me in English because that's, that's what was his native language. And he, I guess he just assumed I spoke English. Yeah. And I was there with my dad and I turned to my dad and I was like, why is the guy speaking English? Can't he just speak French like everyone else? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's how I felt about English, you know, and, but so I, and I didn't really get the point, but then I, I made it through. But then in hindsight, I think that's probably the best thing that would, that happened to me because I, I'm able to, I'm able to be here because I speak good English. I got the job that I'm at right now because I speak English. My wife doesn't speak French. I'm able to be with her because I speak English. So that was probably the best, one of the best decisions that my parents made for my education. But yeah, it was a tough one to swallow in the early on because yeah, I mean, when you're an eight or nine year old kid, like you don't think about, yeah, in the future, in your future career, you're going to want to speak English or something. You kind of think of like your very narrow circle and like, yeah, everybody speaks French. Why would I bother speaking English? So yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting how, like you said, in hindsight, the, those experiences add much more value because I think changing to a different country, I haven't done it eight times, but even just doing it once is very challenging. I think it's harder than people appreciate just how difficult it is to acclimatize to a new culture, to uh, grow new friendships, learn a new language, even which I didn't have to do, fortunately. So even for that, like, I, I, the easiest move possible, right? And it was really challenging still. The question I really have is, is it worth it? Like, what, what is the benefit of, of migrating if you were just doing it? Like, would you encourage anyone to just live in a different country? And why would you encourage that? Actually, I think everyone at least once in their lifetime should live in a different country. And what I mean by different country is like completely different in terms of either culture. Well, yeah, different in terms of culture and in terms of economic development as well, because it makes you appreciate a, a lot more things. So for example, I'm from France. Like France has an amazing social system. Like you have uh, great hospitals. Like people complain all the time about the hospitals. France has great hospitals. People complain all the time about the schools. We have great schools and they're free. Everything is free. And you don't realize that until you move to Thailand and then you have to wait like six hours in a public hospital to get something or you have to go to a private hospital and pay and pay a lot of money to pretty much skip the line. And then, yeah, you look at the schools, the government schools in Thailand, they're not, they're not really good. If you want to have a proper education, you have to pay like twenty to $25,000 a year for your kid to go to a decent school. But the thing is, you don't appreciate that until you actually move to that country. So I would really recommend, like, especially people living in like what you call like 
wealthy countries like Western Europe, Australia, North America to move to places where it's not as developed. Like people don't, there's not as, as much wealth going around. And then you kind of start appreciating a lot more what you have and if, even what the government does for you. To give, to give you another example for the COVID vaccine, I got my COVID vaccine through the French embassy because the Thai government couldn't get his stuff together to get enough vaccine in. And so the French government like sent some vaccines to, to Thailand for the French people to do it for free. I mean, that's the sort of stuff like you don't really appreciate until until you move overseas and you see the government do that. So yeah, definitely, definitely everybody should live in a different country. And I think also, I mean, there's, there's the being appreciative of your own country part. I think there's also the fact of you understand when you move to a different country, you are in a position of weakness in the sense that you don't speak the language. You're a guest in a country. And so you have, you pretty much have to respect, you have pretty much have to respect a whole new set of rules and something. And I think that's a very humbling experience as well. I think, yeah, I, when you, when you move to Thailand and everything is written in Thai. So Thailand is actually nice because yeah, they write a lot of stuff in English, but you know, I mean, a lot of uh, things that's going on around you, it's all like in different alphabets. So you can't even try to figure out what's happening. You know, it's, it's <laughs> like ground, you're at ground zero. Yeah. And I think that's super humbling because you kind of go back to the basics of, and you realize like, yeah, I'm pretty helpless. Like I need to, yeah, you need to be humble and you need to follow the rules and just respect what's happening around you. Yeah, I think that's a really strong point on that appreciation topic. While I say I haven't lived in another country, I've certainly been to plenty of countries. And I remember going to India as an example. Uh, and having lived in Australia, going to a place like India was so different. And I think that's exactly your point. To go to a place that's very different from the place that you live in, I found different forms of appreciation, and you're spot on. I found I appreciated the things that I that I take for granted, like clean water and clean air, that you just don't think about every single day, and that was one thing I appreciated. But then you also appreciate aspects of the other country's culture that perhaps you don't have in your own culture. And one of the things that I noticed, and I'm talking many years ago, maybe as a teenager going to India and some countries in Asia. I found that they were very friendly and they would be outside of the house. They were friendly and they had plenty of time for me. They were outside the front of the house if, and they seemed to have all the time and time in the world. If I wanted to talk, they were there to talk. They were interested in me. They were interested in anything I had to say. Whereas in my own country, I feel like people go to school, they go to work and they come inside and close the door and they're doing things in their house and they're too busy. And if someone walks past you on the street, yeah, you might have a quick wave, but they haven't really got all the, that time. And so... It was just like appreciating different things in your country and in their country. And I'm sure you've, you've seen that many times over with the vast amount of country you've seen or the different forms of things that you take for granted and appreciate in various forms. Definitely. And there's some stuff also like, like when you live in several countries, it's, you get to appreciate stuff not from your own, own country, but from different countries that you've lived in. So for example, so I moved from Botswana to Thailand. So Botswana and Thailand is about the same size country, like the same size. But Thailand has 70 million people. Botswana has 2 million people. And Bangkok alone has like about 15 to 20 million people. We don't even, we don't even know quite for sure, like how many people live there. <laughs> so when I first moved to Bangkok from Botswana, they were just, so, it was just so crowded. And I'm kind of like, man, Botswana was so nice. Like I could just drive to work in five <laughs> minutes. I had never had traffic. It was great. I could wake up at like 8.15 and be at work at 8.30 and like no one would ask me any questions. <laughs> That's just not possible in Thailand, you know? Yeah. So, so, so yeah. And then you kind of like start miss, like about the Dominican Republic. I, uh, I miss the whole like cigar, cigar culture. Like they have this thing 
like on Friday nights, like you, you would go smoke a cigar and like have a glass of rum and it costs you like maybe two, three dollars. And that's just great. If you want to do the same thing in Thailand, it costs you like 10, 15 dollars. And, but then like if you want to, but then if you go to France, like the one thing I would miss about Thailand is everything is always open in Thailand. You can, if you're hungry at 3 a.m., there'll be a 7 Eleven open and you'll be able to eat something. Like in France, forget about it. <laughs> So there's this, so then after a while, like when you live in all those different places, like there's things that you appreciate in every single country and you're kind of wishing that there were like one ultimate country that would combine all of them, but that unfortunately doesn't exist. So you have, you have to compromise on some stuff. <laughs> Another thing that I find quite interesting is when you're moving to a new country, it's kind of like an opportunity to start with a clean slate. Like no one's going to really know you. You can really now be whoever you want to be. Like there's no preconceived kind of notions of who you should be or who you are like you've got a, an a opportunity to make a first impression and be completely a different person if you wanted to right so i'm curious in your experience have you noticed that you would kind of act differently in different countries or that would you act the same like i'm curious to kind of see how you approach that clean slate it's actually funny you mentioned that because Actually, the, the number one motivator for me to go to Australia was like, I just wasn't happy with my life in France. Like I just wasn't happy with who I was. And it just, I was looking for that clean slate. So when I was, so pretty much in my school, like we were, we had to go overseas and we had to choose like which, which place we wanted to go to. And I say, I want to go to Australia because it was a furthest away from France. <laughs> and I just, so I, just, I just wanted, I just wanted to start, I just wanted to start from scratch. Right. So, so yes, yeah, so that, that's what happened. And yeah, uh, like to, to answer your question, definitely, like I would behave differently in different countries just because the environment is different. And people say like you're a product of your environment. And that's really, really true. Like in uh, Botswana, I would have a much more relaxed demeanor. Like, you know, I would be a lot more patient with people as well because people are, there's a, it's a much more, like, like it's a more indirect culture. Like you kind of have to build the relationship and so before you start talking business. But then in, the, in a place like the US, for example, I would be a lot more direct and like, let's get, let's get it done. So, so definitely. And to, to give you an idea, every time my, my parents or my brother come visit me. So they came to visit me in Botswana. They came to visit me in Thailand. They came to visit me. And, and every single time they say, like, man, I have a feeling, I have a feeling you've lived, you've lived here forever. <laughs> and even though, like, you know, it would have been like six months or something, but I, I guess I just pick up the code of what people, people do and stuff like that. I pick up the cues and it's actually, and actually, I realized that that's something that's really helped me with language learning. It's actually, I try to, I try to imitate people and because that's kind of the way they communicate, right? I mean, there's like what they're saying, but there's also the whole body language. So for example, when, let's say you're learning Italian, I don't speak Italian, but if I were to learn Italian, I would probably observe Italian people and see like all their hand gestures and something. So that way I can mimic the hand signals and that would kind of, that would help me immensely like with the language learning and communicating with them yeah that makes a lot of sense and i find that there's a really interesting point right because i think if you only live in one culture for your whole life you, you don't see the culture it's kind of like a fish swimming in water you don't you don't see the water that's there right and it's only once you move to different culture that you see oh there's differences like not everyone values the same things you know like we we think okay this is just how life should go because this is the culture i'm in i need to go to school, get a house or whatever. Like that's what this culture values. But then you go to a different country and it's like, no, that's not important. This is what's really important. And and you get that kind of fish out of water view of what culture is and how it may be impacting you. Because like you say, it has an impact broader than we think. I think we we like to think we're in control of our own destiny, but we often overlook the power of our environment to impact us. 
So I think what you're saying there is very insightful. But one thing I also want to maybe drill a bit deeper into is a lot of people say go traveling or, or to different countries. And by going outside of their culture, they get a better feel of who they are they, to, to kind of use the, the, the catchphrase, find themselves. Did you find that you, you find yourself more kind of, you feel like you know yourself better because you've lived in different cultures and different countries? I wouldn't say so. I mean, first of all, like there's travel and travel, right? I mean, there's traveling, like you're going backpacking and you really immerse yourself in the local culture. Like you go to Thailand and you eat like Thai sweet food and you try to like, you go like, you take a deep dive into Thailand or yeah. there's like traveling to Thailand and staying in a resort in Phuket for two weeks and eating burgers all day. That doesn't yeah. count as traveling. <laughs> so, so, but in terms of like real traveling, like really in depth, I don't like the, the term find yourself because I don't think you ever find yourself. You shape yourself. Mm. And I think you shape yourself through different experiences. So it's kind of like you try different things and then you try different things and then there's some stuff you like. And you go, okay, you know what? I'm going to do more of that. And then there's some stuff you don't enjoy. And you kind of like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that as much. Or maybe I'm going to try it a different way. And then you kind of like build yourself with those uh, different breaks. Because the thing is, you say, like, find yourself. I mean, I think we all change throughout our lives. Like, I mean, there was me as a teenager. Then there was me when I was like 22, 23. Then there was me when I was 27, 28. Now there's me now. I'm radically, I'm a radically different person. Just because my situation changes, I'm living in a different country. My family situation has changed. I have a kid now, and so you can't expect me to to like what was important for me five years ago doesn't matter anymore because I have other priorities and because my situation has changed. I think that's a, that's a very good point, and I find it quite interesting because my experience was maybe a little bit different in the sense that I could see the the ways that I changed, but what surprised me was the things that stayed the same. In terms of the maybe some of the values that trans transferred across that were very similar, which I found really helpful for me to understand. Okay, no, no, I am this way, or maybe like I'm naturally introverted, or I am like this is what I what I value, or this is how I, I am like. So I found it quite helpful to go into a different culture and see what stayed the same because that gave me a bit of an, a sense of who, who I am really and who I'm trying to be. So, because you do have to adapt and you do have to change to, to kind of get basically belong to that new culture in some way. But what I found just interesting was like the ways that I did stay the same. Was there any kind of ways that you stayed the same that surprised you? I got to think about this one. You know, what's great about this podcast is that you ask me questions no one has ever asked me. So I kind of have to think, <laughs> I have to think every question, every answer. The one thing that remains is I've, I've always been looking for freedom. And I think that's something that I really enjoy. And I think part of the reason why, what well, part of the reason why I love traveling is because I just love to have that flexibility and being able to, to travel around. But it's also part of the reason why I'm so obsessed with languages. Like, for example, if I move to Japan tomorrow, first thing I'm going to do is learn Japanese because yeah. you don't have, like, when you don't speak the local language, you're not free. Like, you have to rely on someone. Like, like for example, like in Thailand, I speak Thai. I speak Thai at a good level, but every time I have to do high level stuff, like I have to talk to an immigration officer or something, I need some help from, from my wife because they, I just, you just want to make sure that it's the actual word and not like, you know, some, some made up, like, speak Thai. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I hate that because I, it makes me rely on someone else and I don't like relying on other people. And uh, I think that's one thing that really stayed the same is always that pursuit of freedom. And that's kind of like motivated the entire, that kind of motivated all, 
a lot of my life choices and mismotivated a lot of my interests as well. Yeah, I, I must say I admire your approach of of doing things in the sense you described that when you tried LinkedIn, you put a whole lot of posts out there, tried different things, and see see what was tested, what worked, and what didn't work. And and perhaps that's your approach to a lot of things in life that you will try try different things, try all these different countries, try all these different foods, try all these different languages, see which ones you pick up easy, which ones are harder, which ones you like, uh, what works, what doesn't work. And I think a lot of people are afraid, are actually afraid to make that first move. They're very hesitant. They'll watch. They want to perfect it before they do it. I know I struggle from procrastinating at times because I think, oh, I want to I want to do it really good before I actually do it. And they don't even make that first step. But you seem to like to be the kind of person who has the courage that I don't care if I fail. I've actually, in order to succeed, I do need to fail. And I just got to have a go. Were you always like that? Do you think you got that from your parents? Were you born with it? Or was it just something that you thought was smart? <laughs> Oh, not, not, not at all. My, my parents are very perfectionist. Actually. <laughs> my parents are very perfectionist. And actually in many, in many areas, I'm, I'm a huge procrastinator and, but I'm, I'm working on it. I think it's, I think what happened to me was it's like I was driven out of necessity. Like for me, like the, the travel bug, I caught it because I was just really unhappy with who I was back in France. Like it's just, yeah, it just wasn't comfortable in my, in my skin. And I'm like, you know what? I just need to start fresh and I just need to start traveling and like just, yeah, just uh, start a new chapter. Yeah. So then I started traveling and then I found myself in those situations where, well, I don't speak the language. I hate that. I hate not understanding what's going on. So I'm going to figure out the language. I- I'm going to have to learn it. Yeah. As for LinkedIn, what happened was I was very unhappy at my job. Like it was, it was a lot of work, like increased hours. Like we had to pay, a, take a pay cut because of COVID. The, the company wasn't doing well. And then on top of that, my boss back then wasn't treating people the right way. Like it was a pretty abusive situation. So I was really unhappy. So I've kind of thought to myself, well, you know what? I'm going to figure out LinkedIn because that's my way out. And I got to figure this one out. So because I had that big push, I wanted to get out of a really uncomfortable situation. Then the, then the discomfort of like figuring out LinkedIn is a lot less than the discomfort of my current situation. So I kind of have, I was kind of pushing myself out. And that's, that's why I was so intense. To give you a, a comparison, I've started doing uh, Twitter about two weeks ago, 10 days ago. Well, anyways, like a few days ago. I don't have the same drive. Like I don't prioritize it as much. Why? Because I like my job. I like my job. I like my current situation. So yeah. I, I'm, I don't have the urge of like getting out of something that I, I'm not happy with. So I think it's, it's not really part of my personality. Like, in, as I said, like in many things, I'm really scared. I'm really cautious. But I, yeah, I think it's just the urgency of the situation and like the discomfort of the situation that's pushing me out. And I'm like, you know what? I mean, I might look like an idiot on LinkedIn, but at, at least I'm taking a shot at getting out of the situation because I just, it's just making me sick, you know? So just to give people a feel, like what was going through your mind when you posted that first post? Like how, how scared were you? Oh, I was terrified. I was, actually, my, my first lines I ever wrote on LinkedIn is this feels really scary. And the the story behind it was, yeah, so I wasn't happy in my job and I was, yeah, I was spending some time on LinkedIn because I was looking for work. That's where, that's what job seekers do. And I kept seeing Justin Welsh content pop up like all the time and he makes it so simple. Like, I mean, it's a bit more complicated than how he says it, but the way he packages things is so simple, right? And you're kind of like, well, you know what? I can probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> But then, yeah, I mean, the, and so, yeah, my New Year resolution was like, okay, I'm going to post once a day. And no matter, no matter what, I'm going to post once a day because like that's, 
I mean, what do I have to lose? I mean, if Justin Welsh can do it, I can do it, right? And but yeah, I was terrified. So my first post was like, you know, this is really scary, but my but I want to start posting on LinkedIn because I got stuff to share and I'm going to post once a day, yada yada yada. And it turns out like I did really well because number one, it was a resolutions post, which always do very well on January first. It was a post where I was being authentic, which do which I found out later that authenticity does really well on LinkedIn. And the third thing is I tagged Justin in the post and for some reason he was around. He was around, <laughs> so he interacted with the post. So he kind of boosted it up. And because he boosted it up, then they did really well. Like I think he got like 19,000 views. I was through the roof. I was like, what, really? I did 19,000 views? <laughs> <laughs> so then I, so, but, but you know what? I was actually lucky because I think because I had that early success from my first post, kind of thought to myself, you know what? I can actually figure it out because it's possible. Because then it took me like another month and a half to get to that level. But I got going. I kept going because I'm like, you know what? It is possible. I can figure it out because this, I did really well on that first post and I can do it again if I want to. I just need to, yeah, I just need to like keep iterating. Yeah. I actually remember that post. It was, I think it was very, it was very vulnerable as well in terms of sharing something that I think a lot of people feel and basically admitting that fear is something that a lot of people could resonate with. And it's interesting because it was like the exact opposite of my experience. Like my first post think the first like month of me posting, I think it was mainly my mom liking it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which kind of gave me the, the opposite thing of no one really cares, <laughs> which is, is also quite liberating in right. terms of, okay, I might not kind of break the algorithm or figure it out necessarily as quickly, but you know what? I, I can get over myself because no one really cares as much about what I, I, I was like overthinking. What, why would I say this? Like of all the things that I could be saying, why this thing, what are people going to think about me saying this particular mm. thing? And it was like, oh, no one actually cares. Okay, so I'll just say what I want. <laughs> right. No, that's true. Yeah, people people really, really don't care. I mean, even I mean, even if you post like the the even if you make a post and like it goes viral, it does really well and stuff. People will just forget about it after at like if you talk to someone like a week later about it, like they they will have forgotten about it. And so, <laughs> yeah. and it's really it's really liberating because yeah, I mean, sometimes you try new things and you you post for stuff and like it does well, it doesn't do well, but at the end of the day, it's completely irrelevant. There will be some people, like some hardcore followers and like some supporters that will not take notice with everything you say and everything you, you do, but that's really the minority. That's really the minority. The, the majority, they'll see the post, they're like, oh, that's good, let me comment something. And then, and I'm the first one guilty of that. Like sometimes I, I see some posts and I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, wait, I already liked it? I already commented? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, the people, uh, that's the number one thing that's, that's yeah it's it's liberating like people just don't care i mean it's harsh but they just don't care about you they they care about what you can do for them (laughs) that's it and uh, i've noticed it on linkedin i've noticed it like my job like as a growth marketer whenever i talk to a client they're like oh yeah our product is awesome yeah yeah yeah." and you know i always tell them at the end of the day people don't care about your product they just care about what your product can do for them like yeah if they if your product is not good then just go somewhere else like they don't it's harsh, but it's liberating at the same time. Yeah, it is. One of the things I want to come back to is Mark's point about failure and, and learning, right? Because I think especially with, say, LinkedIn, it's if you if a post falls flat and no one likes it or it really kind of falls flat, your failure is pretty public as well. So, and it's kind of ironic because like no one's liking it, so no one's seeing it. But at the same time, you feel like everyone's seeing that no one's liking it. Right. <laughs> but like, how how did you manage that kind of that that connection between i think it's easy to get your self-worth tied up in 
how much validation you get, whether that's through social media or through just praise people kind of give you in person. But I think social media is particularly telling because it's something that's very out there and obvious to everyone. How how did you find that kind of link between the results you're getting and the self-worth you were feeling? Like, was that an issue at all? At the beginning, definitely. Definitely because that was kind of my only source of, like, it was my source of happiness, my source of dopamine. Like, hey, I'm doing well on LinkedIn or, oh, no, my post fell flat. Like, literally, you'd ask my wife, she'll tell you, like, some days I felt like awesome. Like, I was the the most fun guy to be around. I'd be super positive. I remember the first first time I sold a digital product and I made, like, free sales and I was, like, through the roof and I was, like, super positive (laughs) and super happy. And she's like, man, why aren't you like that every day? (laughs) (laughs) But then, yeah, and then some some days, like I would post something, and like no one would care, and I'd feel terrible about myself. So definitely, in the beginning, that was a problem because I was trying to because also because I tied my LinkedIn growth to like getting out of my current situation mm. of my my situation back then. So so the thing is, you know, not doing well on LinkedIn meant like being stuck longer in that situation. But then after a while, I think it's we just find other sources of enjoyment. Like for me, I found it like from my new job, I found like a lot of, of enjoyment through that. So. LinkedIn didn't like LinkedIn kind of took a backseat and I didn't really care as much because yeah, I mean, it's, it's really dangerous, especially LinkedIn is an algorithm based site, right? So there've been so many cases of like someone's doing really well, like they're going through the roof and stuff. And then they just change the algorithm for whatever reason, because they want to get more loves instead of more likes and what, you know, <laughs> like who, who knows what happens with the algorithm. And then, yeah, people just, collapse and then they just stopped after a week because they're like yeah i used to get like thirty thousand views a post and now i'm getting like 300 and i don't know what's happening i'm like why because if you probably made a change of the algorithm and you're not adapting and you're just tying your self-worth and your happiness to that post so so it's about finding a purpose like beyond just like getting views and getting likes and stuff like that yeah because i think this ties back to that idea of learning as well right because if the fear fear of failure becomes too high, I'd imagine you stop learning. I, I'm curious to know, like, what are ways? Are there ways that you intentionally try to separate that fear of failure from learning and trying new things, whether that's LinkedIn or, or otherwise? I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, you want to notice on the end state, like, where do you want to be and why you're doing this. So, for example, if you take if you take uh, the example of a kid or a baby, like the way they learn how to walk, the way they learn how to talk, and stuff. People say like babies are so cute because they're so candid and just say whatever and they just try all these things like really bold because they don't care what you think about them. Like they haven't started, they haven't developed that part of a brain that cares about what other people think. And because of that, they just try lots of different things and then and they, they're just interested in like, I'm just going to try to walk and I don't care if I'm going to fall a thousand times. I'm going to go from point A to point B to get my toy. Same thing with uh, language. I'm going to start like blabbing stuff until like I can make a sentence and I don't care if people make fun of me. And so I think it's kind of like you have to somewhat, you, you can't go back completely to that stage because like our brains are different. But if you have a very strong motivator, like for example, like I want to learn Thai because my wife is Thai and I want to be able to speak to her in Thai and I want to, I want to talk to her family and I want to be able to live in Thailand without speaking English. That's a very strong motivator, especially when you're in Thailand and you're surrounded with people speaking Thai and surrounded with signs in Thai and you want to figure out what's happening. Then you have a very strong motivator because, yeah, like there's a tangible benefit to it. So then you're going to do a lot of trial and error because you're like, I got to figure it out. But then if 
tomorrow I say, okay, you know what, I'm going to learn, I don't know, like Polish. I, I have nothing against Poland, but that's not a country I'm particularly interested in. I don't know anyone from Poland. I've never been to Poland. Yeah, I won't be as intense in my learning of Polish just because I don't have that same motivation. However, if tomorrow I'm, I'm moving to Poland and I have to like immerse myself in a new culture, then I'll be very motivated in, in learning Polish. So, so at the end of the day, what you want is a very, very strong motivator. That's really the key because if you have a strong enough motivator, then you're not going to care as much about what people think and what the reactions are. You're just going to focus on getting better every single day. And it's going to be a lot easier to kind of like shut out what people, what people think about you. Yeah, I think that's very important. I think being very crystal clear on on your need and why you're doing something has, has a big impact on on all those other things. One of my thoughts as you're talking about LinkedIn is I've heard plenty of people say that LinkedIn's a complete waste of time. It can consume your life and you get no no results. People get I guess social media in general, people get addicted to to likes and and as we said earlier in the in the podcast, people haven't even met each other. They barely don't even know each other. Does is there like really a like? Does it really have any meaning? Are they scrolling through and just clicking a button as a habit? And did did you ever feel at times, what am I doing here on LinkedIn? Am I wasting my life? Am I just sitting behind this phone or, or laptop and pressing buttons with other people who all are doing the same thing and everyone just liking each other? But but what's the point? I think it comes back to your point of need. But I think I think it's a it's a very it's a conversation in society that comes up a lot about social media and about the time people waste. Right. Yeah. I I did have a stage on on LinkedIn. Well, at several stages where I'm kind of thought like, yeah, what what am I doing? Like, why uh, I'm wasting my time? So, like, I kind of identified like three periods where it happened. Like, the first time was about I think it was in March last year. They changed the algorithm and pretty much made my my post views kind of went crashing. And I thought to myself, like, what am I doing or something? And the the thing that saved me back then was I had committed originally to do to doing three months. So instead of committing for a year, I'm going to do, you know what, I'm going to do it from January 1st until March 31st. And then on March 31st, I'm going to make a decision. But until then, I have to post every single day. So I got saved by my system on that one, because otherwise I would have given up because I wasn't getting my dopamine rush <laughs> from, from, from my post as much as I, as I, as I wanted. Uh, the second time I was in July, and it's actually funny because I almost gave up. And right after, and right after, I did extremely well. I went on a hot streak, and I and I, I really accelerated my growth. And that time, I was saved by I was growing with someone, so I had like a, a buddy. Uh, actually, like the entourage is very important. I, I'll get I'll get to it later. But pretty much, like you know, I was growing at the same pace as someone. And I talked to him, and I'm like, man, I'm wasting my time on LinkedIn. Like seriously, why am I doing this? Yeah, and the guy kind of gave me a pep talk. He's like, "Man, no, like, don't do that. Like, like this guy really likes you. I had this guy, on, I had a call with with this guy the other day, and he really loves your stuff. No, man, don't give up. Come on, do it." And then like, gave me a pep talk, and then like, gave me some feedback on my post, and he's like, "Yeah, you should fix this. You should fix that. You should fix it." And I did, and then it kind of took off. So, so having a really good entourage around you, like a team of supporters that really pushes you when you want to give up, is really important. And the third time was actually, yeah, around like November, December out. I just grew sick and tired of, of posting every day. And I felt like, I don't know what happened to the algorithm, but I felt like all the posts were the same thing. And it was like kind of like inspirational stuff, like very empty posts, like posts to say, I, I call them like bursting through open doors. 
like kind of say like, yeah, I believe everybody should be equal. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Everybody agrees, but can I have more? <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, but can I have more substance, please? You know, and he was yeah, kind yeah. of like almost like that. And I'm like, what, what am I doing here? It's a waste of time. <laughs> but then what, what I did, I, I kind of figured like, yeah, it's probably my browsing habits, which created that. So then I became more deliberate in like finding the right, the kind of creators I don't want to engage with. And then I kind of like rearranged my algorithm. But so go, going back to the entourage, like one thing I, I do find, which is uh, really cool is to have a group of people, like maybe, f- yeah, four to five people, like not, not a very big crowd, but they're all in the same space as you. So let's say, for example, I've been learning about like personal branding, like building on LinkedIn. So the first category of people is people who are ahead of me. So people, so right now I have like 14,000 followers. Like, you know, that would be people with like, you know, 25 to 30,000 followers and like more views and stuff like that. So these guys, they kind of give me guidelines about like, they kind of give me feedback about like, what do I need to do in order to grow, to get to the next level? What bumps am I going to hit or something like this? So that way they can kind of coach me like, yeah, I was where you were like six months ago, a year ago. This is how you get to where I am. So you need to have these guys as like targets to like keep yourself going. Like I need to get this guy. Then you have people who are the same level as you. And these guys are growing at about the same pace and you started around the same time. And you, because you're going at the same pace and you're at the same level, then when you hit a problem, chances are you're hitting the same problem at the same time and you can kind of figure it out together and you can enjoy the peer learning opportunities because you face a problem. And then like, like for example, I do that with my friend, Steve George, like we hang out like once a month and we're like, oh, I'm hitting this problem. Oh yeah, I did. I had the same problem too. This is what I did. And then he tries it and then sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And we kind of learn from each other. And then the third group, and I think that's the most important one, is people who are behind you. Because what happens when you're learning when you're surrounded with people who are at the same level or are ahead of you, you don't see how much better you're getting because you kind of have a baseline. You're kind of like, man, I still suck. I still stuck at LinkedIn. Like, man, I only get like, I only get like 15,000 views. That's terrible. But then you talk to someone who just started and they're like, wow, you're getting 15,000 views. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so you need those guys to kind of like, first of all, because it's the right thing to do. You paid forward and you, you got, you got to help fellow creators. But second of all, it kind of makes you realize like how much you actually know. And sometimes you don't realize what until you talk to someone who doesn't know anything about what you're doing. And then you're like, you know what? I'm actually pretty good at this. Huh. I didn't know. Hmm. So, so that's why it's really important to have those three types of people in your entourage because they're going to stretch you, but they're also going to help uh, you measure your progress. And I think that's really invaluable. Yeah, and I think I mean you can apply that to any learning, right? I, I think it's that is true for regardless of what you're learning having someone to to model yourself after someone who you can work with grow with together and people that you can then teach as well because i think often the best way to really learn is to teach and and i know that teaching and education is is a part of is a passion of yours as well and i'd love to know especially in the in the area of language right because i think you've spoken a bit about motivation but I, i suspect that a lot of people We've heard it's really beneficial learning a new language. Yeah, there's the the communication part, which is the obvious part, but also there is you, you see a culture through a different lens. You can't fully appreciate a culture until you speak its language. And language, the way that a language constructs is constructed, really determines how you think as well. And I mean, you probably know more about this than than me. But if if someone's kind of on the the, the fence about should I learn your language or not, what would you kind of tell them the benefits are of learning that language like what are the reasons that it, it would be helpful well i mean there's there's all the like like i would say like obvious reasons like there's the economic advantage like for example you're in australia if you speak chinese in australia right now it's it's you, you're almost guaranteed a very good job 
So there's economic opportunities, obviously. Second one would be like being able to travel, like but travel like a local. So for example, when you go to somewhere, you always have like a tourist price and you have like the local price. Yeah. And the tourists pretty much get ripped off all the time. But the, <laughs> but the thing is, they don't know it because they don't go to the local place because they don't, they don't dare going there because they don't speak the language, right? So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, in terms of travel, like if you're into traveling, like knowing, like knowing the language is really going to help with your having a better time and also like having a much more immersive and like memorable, memorable experience. Another one is it's a neurological one. Like the thing is, because you're learning a new language, your brain is getting used to switching between different contexts and stuff like that. And so actually studies show, I, th I think it delays Alzheimer's by like two to three years if you're bilingual. And when you have yeah. more languages you speak, the... Uh, the further it delays Alzheimer's. So it's a, actually a really good brain exercise. But the thing is what, what I find, what I find is people know that, but the thing is it's so difficult to learn a new language that they just don't do it because, or they do it for like two weeks or something. And then they're like, oh, it's not fun or something. So <laughs> I, my, my biggest advice is just pick a country or a language you're really interested in. Like, I don't care. For example, if you have a fascination with Kazakhstan or whatever, just learn Kazakh because the more interested you are in a language and a culture, the likelier you are to learn it because you'll stick to it longer, right? I mean, if you're really mm. passionate about about Kazakhstan and Kazakh culture and things like this, then you're going to be a lot more resilient to learning and you're going to focus a lot more easily because your brain will be more motivated. So yeah, technically it's a useless language because it's only spoken in Kazakhstan and there's not that many Kazakhs around and Kazakhstan is not that economic juggernaut like China or you know other countries. But you, your probability of speaking it at a decent level is a lot higher because you have the right motivation. So it's, it's really goes down, it goes back to motivation. Like, yeah, definitely learn language because it's really good for you in many different aspects, but be very careful, like be very deliberate about which language you're going to learn because, and it's not about like usefulness or something. I hate people who say like, you should learn Chinese because it's useful. I'm like, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's useless. People learn Chinese and they can barely hold a conversation. And that's completely useless. I mean, yeah, they know Chinese, but they can just barely order a bowl of rice. And <laughs> But then at the same time, I'd rather speak to someone who learns like a so-called useless language like Kazakh, who speaks it really well and can have a conversation or something. Because you know what? This guy can actually do something with a language, <laughs> you know? And that's yeah. worth a lot more than any useful language that you speak at a very low level. Mm, no, very true. I remember in... When I went to high school, we had to learn French and German as part of our standard Australian education system. And I reckon if I asked everyone in my class today how much French and German they still know, 99% wouldn't know much beyond Jamapel, Jamapel Mark. Or in German, I can't even barely remember even a, a word or a phrase right now. Uh, and I remember, I remember going to a Tony Robbins talk and he, he was very big on the topic of immersion. If you want to learn something, you go through a period where you really immerse yourself in, in the subject or in content, and, you know, whether it's 30 days or whatever the period is. And here to make the point, like if you really wanted to learn French and you were really serious about it and you had a genuine reason to learn French, then get your butt over to France for 30 days and immerse yourself in the culture, in the, in the language where you're kind of forced to, to speak it and, and do it. And I think of all, all, all your languages and travel, they go, sort of go hand in hand. You've lived in these countries. You've got a chance to learn the language and you get a chance to use it and live it and, you, and you're immersed in it. And it just sort of s seems to come together quite well as opposed to me sitting here in Sydney, Australia, learning French and German and I'm not speaking to anyone in French or German or have 
no real desire or need. Definitely. And, and I think also being in Australia, it's compound. Australia being a really big place, you don't really feel the need to, to learn another language because you can drive like 10 hours and you'll still find people who speak English. <laughs> yeah. If you're in France and you drive two hours, you're in Belgium and you have a country speaks Dutch, right? And then you drive another two hours, you're in Germany, people speak German. And then you drive another three hours, you're in Denmark and people speak Danish. <laughs> you know, so, so you're a lot more exposed to the need of having learning different languages because you realize very quickly yeah i mean people in my country speak speak that language they speak like speak french or speak english but outside of that country they speak a different language and you get get that need very quickly so but i think there's also so that will be like why like in australia or in the u.s like people are not really learning different languages because it's just so big places they don't you know they don't need to but the other thing is I think the population, like the number of native speakers really has an impact as well. So for example, so I, I grew up in France. France has about 70 million people right now. Technically, French people could just do business with other French people. They'll be able to survive okay? because there's enough people and they make enough money and you'll be able to like, you know, just stay among themselves and they'll be able to speak, to speak the language. Same thing happens in Thailand, 70 million people speaking Thai. They just do business among Thai people. But then if you look at in Europe, the best speakers, the best speakers of foreign languages, they're Swedish. But then if you look at Sweden, Sweden is 8 million people. So the thing is, Sweden is too small for them to survive just speaking Swedish. They have to work with other people. Otherwise, they're, I mean, yeah, they might make a living, but they're not going to make a good living. So they need to work with other people and they need to work with foreigners. So that's why they have to learn all those languages. And so... You also have to see, like, if your native language is French, if it's English, if it's Russian, if it's Portuguese, if it's Spanish, you don't have the same incentive to learn because, yeah, you just have a lot of people already speak your language. However, if your first language is Dutch, you don't have that many people to work with. So you need to learn another language. That's, I think that's a very strong motivator. And when you look in Europe, it's very, it's very interesting. You look, the best speakers of foreign languages are from the small countries. And that's because no one speaks their language. So they have to learn other people's languages in order to communicate. That, that makes a lot of sense. And so let's say you are going to Kazakhstan and you don't know anyone there yet. And you, you, you've booked up to travel there in, say, six months. Mm -hmm. So there's no, no one to talk to as such in, in that language. But you want to learn it. You want to. You're going to immerse yourself in it. How would you go about learning that language before you make the trip? Okay. So the first thing is before, like with the way I, I planned the trip, I would stay away from the big cities. Okay? okay. I would deliberately stay in a small town where I'm 100% sure no one will speak English. Because that, okay. that's the other thing. That's the other mistake people make. When they learn French, they want to go to Paris. And I'm like, that's a terrible idea because Paris is full of tourists and people in Paris, when they want to talk to you, they can speak to you in English. <laughs> when they're actually in a good mood. <laughs> and the thing is, yeah, so people go to Paris for six months and then they come back and they're like, I don't speak French. Well, yeah, because that's in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> English speakers. You know, so so the n number one thing is go to a place where you're not, like, first of all, I will book a place. I don't know Kazakhstan well enough, but outside of the big cities where I'm 100% sure no one will speak English, no one will speak French and so. So that's where I will have to speak Kazakh to survive. So that's the first thing. So the second thing is, what should I learn? How do I practice? So first of all, we need to figure out about what the needs are. Okay. So what are the basic needs? I'm probably going to need to introduce myself, probably going to need to order some food. I'm probably going to need to ask for directions, probably going to need to buy stuff. I'm probably going to need to ask like stuff like where the bathroom is, something like this. And hopefully not, but I'm probably going to have to 
tell people like if I'm hurting somewhere, being able to like, you know, tell people what's happening, right? So then you kind of identify those needs and you kind of, you can use some free resources online. You have like places like Forvo where you can hear recordings of people like in native speakers, like saying some sentence, some pre-made sentences. So that way you kind of, uh, you know, you can use Forvo, you can use YouTube, uh, you can buy a Facebook as well. And it's pretty much about like learning those chunks of languages where, you know, you, so at least you're able to express yourself. So that's the first thing. Second thing is it will be to watch some YouTube content in that language. So it doesn't really matter if you understand it or not at that point. The key is to get a, a feel, like to train your ear to like listen to the language and get some words and get the rhythm as well. So that way you kind of get like how the language is spoken. Because for example, if you listen to like French, you listen to Italian, you listen to German, like aside from the words, they just sound very different in terms of rhythm. And if you want to learn that language really well, you need to pick up the rhythm. That's the, that's the key. So it's like you, you'll notice like with, with French people, it's very, it's, it's very funny because when French people speak good English, they tend to still use the same rhythm as English. So English kind of goes like up and down all the time. You have some words which you kind of like say it loud and then some words you kind of like accelerate and you kind of like get combined into one thing. French is very flat. We kind of say every single word. And we don't really, we don't really have like all those intonations and something. But the thing is, when a French speaker speaks really good English, they will use the French rhythm and apply it to English. So they will have a kind of like quite boring kind of English because it will sound like very flat and there will be something missing. And that what's missing is a rhythm. So the point is by listening to that content, you get an idea of the rhythm and how the language sounds like. So that way, when you are, when you're exposed to a new word in that language, you know exactly how to say it and you know how to say it like naturally. And then it's going to make your life a lot easier because, because you'll be able to say naturally, people will understand you better. And because they understand you better, they're not going to make fun of you. And because they don't make fun of you, you're going to have that feedback and that's going to be a lot, lot easier. The third thing, and that's also part of the uh, uh, YouTube, that if you can find a movie or not even movies, actually, you can find a, if you can find something like, like you watch the news or something. And you just look at how people behave, like what's their body language or something. And what I try to do is I try to mimic their body language. I try to impersonate them and while speaking the language. So for example, if I have to learn Kazakh, I will take like a Kazakh TV show, whatever. I, I don't know. I'll find something online in Kazakh and I'll just look at the guests and I'll look at the host and I'll just try and I will just try to imitate them like either parroting what they say without knowing what they're saying to get practice my pronunciation, or I would try to use whatever words I know in Kazakh, like about introducing myself or about describing stuff and try to, to do it in very broadly language. So that's where you kind of, it's kind of like using, I call it that the chameleon technique. You kind of like try to become like one, one of them essentially. Mm. And that just makes it a lot easier because you kind of develop a persona and if that's kind of like separated from yourself and you kind of develop a role and that's, and it becomes like your Kazakh self, your, your Kazakh self. <laughs> yeah. And it just makes it a lot easier because then people will, will see, it will make you a lot more confident. And even if you do make a small mistake with the words that you're using, because you're using the right body language and you're using the right rhythm, people will understand you a lot better and they will, and they will be wow, like, wow, you speak really well, even though you don't speak that well, but because you picked up the rhythm and you picked up the body language. And people will be really, really impressed and you get that positive feedback and then people will, will encourage you to keep going.
So that's really interesting. So what, what I'm hearing is that it's very focused to what you need. And what I'm not hearing is I'm not hearing you get Duolingo, like an app. Uh, learn. <laughs> Duolingo is useless. You're not going to learn language with Duolingo. Duolingo is only useful if you want to maintain your language. Okay. So let's say, for example, you're learning about greetings and you're focusing, you've learned how to speak and stuff like that, and you need something to practice and like kind of like remind yourself. Duolingo is a great app for that. However, you're not going to learn a language just by doing Duolingo. You're, the only way to learn a language is to speak it. And you're not going to speak that language with Duolingo. You can use Duolingo like to, so as a memory, and then you can always like, because they give you like sentences, for example, then you can always like hide the app and like try saying the sentence. That's something you can do to practice, but you're not going to have the same, it's not going to be as effective. So yeah, I, I feel, I know a lot of people love Duolingo, and uh, but to me, I think it's just one small detail. Like it's not the most useful app out there. It's something that's quite, quite interesting because people have this obsession of making learning fun. And I understand like the motivation because learning, like in, in many cases, it's not fun because it's, it's kind of like hard on the ego that like you have to try a lot of things. But what, if you really, really want to learn, it's not fun. The best kind of practice is not fun. Actually, like there's this book uh, by Anders Ericsson, uh, Peak, where he studied the, so I think he went to the University of Berlin and he studied the violin players. And he noticed like the, there was this complete correlation between how many hours they spent doing like boring violin drills and how good they became. And, you know, it's true with violin, it's true with football, it's true with languages, it's true with digital marketing. It's how much of that boredom can you withstand. And that goes back to the motivation. If you're very motivated, you're going to go through all the drills, you're going to do all the, do all the boring drills because you have a very strong push to, to get better. So yeah, that's another piece of advice. Like if you're, if you're really motivated, you don't need for it to be fun. Actually, like trying to have fun learning. Yeah, it helps a kid, for example, because you need to get the kid motivated. Otherwise, they're not going to sit down and do it. But if you're an adult, no, you don't need more fun. You need more motivation. I think that's a really good point because it's really that deliberate practice is what creates that competency, right? And I think a lot of people might think, well, I'm just not good at it. You know, I can't learn a new language. It's just I'm not good at it. Like languages don't come easy to me. But what you're saying, and because I also read Peak, and essentially what that's saying is like, well, talent's a myth. It's not about whether you're naturally good at it or not. It's just have you been deliberately practicing the skills required for that. So would you kind of say, like, is there anyone that would, would you say, well, just can't learn a language? Or do you think it's just a matter of they haven't put the deliberate practice in? No, I mean, some people have more. So for example, like I speak a lot of languages. So for me, like naturally it's easier because like my, my brain is trained for it and I enjoy it. Like that's just an activity I enjoy. So yeah, I mean, it's also like what language are you talking about? So for example, I speak French and Spanish. When I learned Portuguese, Portuguese was very easy because it's very, very close to what I already knew. However, if you ask me tomorrow to learn, I don't know, Georgian, Georgian is completely different from what I know. So of course, it's going to take me more time. It's also, I think the people who say like, oh, I can't learn a new language or something. They also try languages which are not the easiest. So actually the Foreign Service Institute in the US, they have a chart which kind of like categorizes languages about like how difficult they are, like how many hours you would need as an English speaker to master them. And the thing is, people typically go, they will go, after, like English speakers, they will go to French, German, Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, like, you know, so Chinese, Japanese, that's, that's very, very difficult because you have tones, you have a new script to write. And French, German and stuff, like they have like both their quirks and stuff like that. They're not the easiest one. 
But actually, if you are an English speaker, the easiest languages to learn is Dutch and Swedish. And I've never heard anyone who says, oh, I'm learning Dutch right now. I'm learning Swedish because I guess they just want to make their lives difficult and go after the, and go after the useful language. But yeah, those, those ones are more difficult. So they kind of setting themselves up for failure, like right from the start. So my advice is if you think that you can't learn, like, you can't do something, like just lower the bar for yourself. Like just, just go for the easiest one. So for example, you're learning, trying to learn your language. You can learn, like if you're an English speaker, you can learn Dutch, you can learn Afrikaans, you can learn Swedish, you can learn Esperanto, which is a artificial language, which was designed to be easy to learn so that you can prove yourself and I kind of break that belief barrier. And once you break that belief mm. barrier and you realize, okay, you know what? I can actually learn a language. Then you can go after the more difficult ones. So yeah, like my advice is like, yeah, if you want to learn a new language, unless you're really, really motivated, don't start with Chinese. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like you're starting like rock climbing and the first the first place you go to is like, oh yeah, I'm going to do Everest. That sounds great. <laughs> of course, it's going to be difficult. <laughs> it's the highest mountain in the world. So it's the same thing with languages. You know, start with a easier one, but again, start with with one that you're motivated to learn. And then like out of all the languages that you want to learn, pick the easier one so that you, you kind of get that belief barrier down. We, we mentioned about uh, LinkedIn, the fact that my first post did really well, it broke my belief barrier. It kind of made me realize, hey, you know what? I can do this thing. It's possible. I, you know, I just have to work hard to make it consistent and predictable. But you know what? I can make it happen if I want to. And that's incredibly important for the motivation after. Because if no matter how much someone tells you, oh, yeah, it's possible, it's possible, it's possible. Unless you've experienced it yourself, you're not going to, to believe it 100%. So it's really important to kind of create the environment for yourself to believe in it and buy into into the process so that, so that way you can you can sustain the process long enough to 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 get a result yeah i think that's a that's a really that's really good advice florian really appreciate this conversation i, I don't want to i want to be respectful of your time how could people get to know a bit more about you or what you're doing how could they reach out to you so well i mean i'm always on linkedin i'm on linkedin every day so you can send me a dm you can yeah you can leave a comment on i can engage with my content uh, i'm always like reading everything so yeah that's the best way to get in touch with me as far as what I do, so I, I've been a growth marketer for about six months now. So I do growth marketing strategies for for companies in the early stage. And it's actually funny because our, our specialty is actually learning. And it's like, <laughs> so, so our specialty is actually for companies that have a product or have a concept and they're trying to figure out like the best channel and the best angle and the best audience to sell to. And we do that for them. And we create strategies to kind of like learn more about our customers and learn about the best way to market their product. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun and learning a lot in that, in that job. And yeah, it's been a journey. And that's, that's all thanks to getting started on LinkedIn. So it's also the great thing about putting yourself out there is that you just never know what's going to happen to you and all the opportunities you're going to, to run into. So yeah, keep going. Yeah. I think that's a great way to, to end the conversation. Thanks, Lauren. Really appreciate this conversation. Thank sure. you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Florian. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Candle Communication Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode. You can connect with us by visiting our website, candlepodcast.com, where you can find show notes for this episode, or you can connect through our social media pages on Facebook or LinkedIn. Also, please remember to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It really helps us to get the word out. Thanks. See you next time.